From the great American Pacific Northwest, greetings and welcome to another edition of the Parachronicle Almanac. I'm Jonathan Hawk. Well, another week is in the books for 2020, and what a week it has been. A lot of good stories to highlight this week, but let's take care of some business first before we jump into this week's news. At the bottom of last week's show, I noted how to get in contact with us, um, and we have several ways. This program is yours just as much as it is ours, uh, so we want to hear from you, your ideas, your suggestions, feedback, both good and bad, uh, and your sightings and experiences, probably most importantly, your sightings and experiences. Um, we think uh, in the future, that's really where we want uh, this and some other programming we, we have planned uh, directionally anyway, to go. And it's really going to be all about you, the listener, and what you're seeing and, and feeling and experiencing. So you can reach me at hawk at theparachronicle.com. That's H-A-W-K-E at theparachronicle.com. Or you can visit us at theparachronicle.com. Scroll on over to the contact tab. Click that. And uh, I think we've got a various uh, various ways of of being able to contact us on there, uh, including our email. Uh, our socials are on there too. And we also have the Parachronicle hotline. Uh, so you can call us at 818-570-0126 and tell us what you're seeing. And while we certainly, absolutely place no limits on who can call in, at the moment, uh, we have a particular interest in hearing from truck drivers. Um, we want to hear from you and we want to, we want you to tell us the unusual things you've seen on the open roads of America, or really where anywhere in the world. Uh, you know, that profession is something that just exists everywhere. So whether you're here in the United States or in Canada, uh, Mexico, so South America, Asia, Europe, we want to hear from you uh, because we know strange things happen out on the open roads. Many of you end up driving at night. Um, and so you see strange, unusual things, whether it's in the sky or, or you know, ghostly apparitions, things like that. Um, tell us, please. We, we want to hear from you. And if we can get enough stories, uh, we'll look to make a show out of them early next year. Um, maybe an episode or maybe we kind of interweave your stories throughout multiple episodes. We'll see. But uh, we definitely want to hear from you. Um, but whether you're a truck driver or not, and if, you, if you're not a truck driver, you can still call. Uh, we're not limiting... Uh, who can call that hotline? If you have a good tale to tell, call that hotline and give us the lowdown. Heck it, save it to your contacts because you never know when you're going to see something out of the ordinary. That's 818-570-0126. Uh, and just remember to be detailed, but uh, try to be brief. And uh, yeah, give us a good story. We want we want to share it with, with our audience. Moving on, this isn't really, uh, I wouldn't call this business, but it's something I wanted to uh, uh, hit at the top of the show today. Um, the world lost a hero this week. Uh, Chuck Yeager passed away at the age of 97. Uh, born in Myra, West Virginia in 1923, uh, he passed away this past Monday in Los Angeles. An enlisted pilot trainee of, of World War II after serving as an aircraft mechanic, Jaeger would go on to serve on the Western Front in a P-51 Mustang fighter, credited with hitting 11 and a half enemy aircraft. The other half was uh, credited to his co-pilot. Most notably, though, Mr. Jaeger went on to become a renowned test pilot, flying experimental rocket-powered aircraft, and infamously, 
or famously, on, on October 14th, 1947, incidentally, the same year as the infamous Roswell incident, Chuck did something no other human had done in recorded history. Flying his experimental Bell X-1, he achieved Mach 1, breaking the sound barrier, becoming the first human to do so, and breaking history books. He'd go on to break more speed and altitude records, winning countless awards, remaining in the U.S. Air Force until 1975. In 1983, Jaeger made a cameo appearance in the movie The Right Stuff, an Oscar-winning film about the military pilots selected for the Mercury space missions. He played a character named Fred, a bartender at Pancho's place, which was most apropos, as Jaeger once said, if all the hours were ever told, I reckon I spent more time at her place, meaning the saloon, than in a cockpit over those years. As equally fine a person as he was an American, he pushed humanity to limits it had never reached. Godspeed, Chuck. You'll not soon be forgotten. And lastly, I wanted to take a moment to wish our Jewish friends around the world a magnificent Hanukkah. Uh, despite the virus among us, and the vaccine is so close, don't forget to take time to celebrate, reflect, and spend time with family and friends in person or otherwise, and give time for yourself. You deserve it after this wild year. So to our Jewish friends, L'chaim, enjoy Hanukkah. And with that, let's get into the news. A former Israeli space security chief says aliens exist, but humanity isn't ready. Uh, this is coming from the Jerusalem Post. Has the state of Israel made contact with aliens? According to retired Israeli general and current professor Haim Ashed, the answer is yes. But this has been kept a secret because, quote, humanity isn't ready. Speaking in an interview, Ashed, who served as the head of Israel's space security program for nearly 30 years and is a three-time recipient of the Israel Security Award, explained that Israel and the U.S. have both been dealing with aliens for years. And this by no means refers to human immigrants, with Ashad clarifying the existence of, quote, a galactic federation. The 87-year-old former space security chief gave further descriptions about exactly what sort of agreements have been made between the aliens and the U.S., which ostensibly have been made because they wish to research and understand, quote, the fabric of the universe. This cooperation includes a secret underground base on Mars, where there are American and alien representatives. And this actually reminds me, uh, just to take a side note, uh, it's funny he brings this up because um, for those of you who are familiar, uh, a, a long-running rumor is uh, President Dwight D. Eisenhower back in 1954 uh, having a golf trip interrupted uh, to do just that, meet with, <laughs> supposedly anyway, meet with aliens at Edwards Air Force Base uh, and essentially create some sort of um, agreement or uh, I guess a, a federation if you if you want to call it that but uh, so it's it's interesting that however many years later we're talking uh, what is this 70 years roughly 70 years later um, this is this is the type of thing surfacing so anyway if true this would coincide with US President Donald Trump's creation of the Space Force as the fifth branch of the US Armed Forces though it is unclear how long this sort of relationship if any, has been going on between the U.S. and its reported extraterrestrial allies. 
But Ashed insists that Trump is aware of them and that he was, quote, on the verge of disclosing their existence. However, the Galactic Federation reportedly stopped him from doing so, saying they wished to prevent mass hysteria since they felt humanity needed to, another quote, evolve and reach a stage where we will understand what space and spaceships are. As for why he's chosen to reveal this information now, Neshed explained that the timing was simply due to how much the academic landscape has changed and how respected he is in academia. If I had come up with what I'm saying today five years ago, I would have been hospitalized, he says. He added that today, they're already talking differently. I have nothing to lose. I've received my degrees and awards. I'm respected in universities abroad, where the trend is also changing. Ashed provided more information in his newest book, The Universe Beyond the Horizon, Conversations with Professor Haim Ashed, along with other details such as how aliens have prevented nuclear apocalypses and, quote, when we can jump in and visit the men in black. While it's unclear if any evidence exists that could support Ashed's claims, they did uh, come just ahead of the recent announcement by Space Cell, the group behind Israel's failed attempt to land a spacecraft on the moon in 2019. Uploaded to social media with the text, quote, ready to get excited again, the announcement contained a 15-second video of the moon with text saying, back to the moon, followed by the date of December 9th, 2020. It is likely that this is a follow-up to the Beersheet spacecraft, which crashed after engineers lost contact with it just minutes before it was due to land. However, the follow-up project, titled Beersheet 2, is expected to take three years to be ready. The article goes on to uh, speculate that maybe his talk of aliens and a galactic federation are more of a PR stunt than in actuality. But again, it's it's one of those things that's been spoken about for decades now that the U.S. in particular, and who's to say other countries, are involved with some sort of secret alien society. And in somewhat related news, uh, the Pentagon responds to the release of a photograph taken by a Navy pilot showing an unidentified object. Uh, this comes from the Mystery Wire. A new media report shows what is described as an unidentified aerial object, or UAP, flying near a U.S. Navy jet. In an article published Wednesday on the Debrief website, and a new article Thursday, writer Tim McMillian goes into detail about several top-level briefings on the UAP task force. And get ready for this is the fun acronym part of this article. The Advanced Aerospace Weapons Special Application Program, otherwise known as AAWSAP, and the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, otherwise known as AATIP, ATIP, that were given to high-ranking members of Congress and military staff. In the more recent article, Debrief published a photograph showing what is characterized as UAP, or as a UAP. One of the new pieces of information is about a recent UAPTF report, not a TPS report, put out this past summer, which includes a photograph taken by a military pilot showing an object near his jet. The Debrief writes the photo was taken by a military fighter pilot during uh, a flight off the eastern coast of the United States, though the location uh, remains undisclosed. In 2019, Mystery Wire was given a copy of the same cockpit photo. Mystery Wire was told the photograph was taken in 2018 by a Navy pilot using his cell phone. At this time, we can't confirm if there are any other photographs of this, of this object, but Mystery Wire reached out to the Department of Defense, 
uh, for reaction to the publication of this photograph, and uh, they came back with, quote, I have nothing for you on that. I am not going to comment on whether something was or was not in a classified intelligence report. In general, regarding UAPs, to maintain operation security and to avoid disclosing information that may be useful to potential adversaries, DOD does not discuss publicly the details of reports, observations, or examinations of reported incursions into our training ranges or designated airspace, including those incursions initially designated as a UAP. And that's a quote from Sue Go, a representative of the Defense Public Affairs Operations. The DOD release stated, The Department of the Navy, under the cognizance of the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security, will lead the UAPTF. So there's really not much more info besides that picture, uh, but definitely uh, either go to uh, theparachronicle.com or uh, look at the links um, included in this broadcast and you can see that photo for yourselves it a little nondescript uh, higher quality than most though uh, and it kind of looks like a uh, something out of Mario Brothers like a little upside down squid or something but kind of cool and it it looks and seems authentic at least to the untrained eye so have a look I'd be curious what do you think if you if you see that photo and, and you have uh, uh, thoughts let us know a NOAA satellite passing thousands of miles over Michigan recorded an alien-looking weather phenomenon that is often mistaken for UFOs and their portals. Meteorologists call the phenomenon fall streak or hole punch clouds, and they often uh, and they're often created by aircraft, according to a November 23rd NOAA satellite and information service report. However, the mysterious holes in the sky can be so perfectly shaped that alarmed people on the ground often report them as UFOs, according to EarthSky.org. Satellite video shared by NOAA on Facebook shows the phenomenon happened over Michigan on November 20th, starting with small nicks in the cloud cover, then expanding to giant traveling holes in the sky. Scientists say these so-called fall streak holes are the result of a chain reaction started by passing aircraft, not UFOs. Quote, these holes are large circular or elliptical gaps that appear in certain kinds of clouds, quote, made up of super cooled water droplets, which means they are composed of water that is below the freezing point, but are still in liquid form. NOAA Satellite Information Service reported, quote, super cooled water is very unstable and will flash freeze when disturbed, according to NOAA. So when something disturbs the cloud, like an aircraft, this can trigger the droplets to turn into tiny ice crystals. As they quickly grow and absorb nearby water droplets, they become heavier and begin to fall, leaving a hole behind. These circular patches of clear sky surrounded by clouds, as EarthSky describes them, are known to spark spirited debates on social media. In 2011, National Geographic reported that three nearly identical UFO-like cloud formations over South Carolina had prompted online discussions linking the features to everything from the second coming to recent mass bird deaths to secret military experiments. The formations were later identified as fall street clouds, possibly generated by National Guard or Marine fighter jets training in the area, it was reported. NOAA's video of the formation was recorded by the GOES East satellite, which orbits at 22,000 miles above Earth. And the satellite monitors severe weather events, including thunderstorms, tropical storms, and hurricanes, officials say. So, you know, with, with all these stories, we have that classic tug and pull of disclosure versus denial on the subject of 
UFOs, UAPs, and what they are or aren't. Um, it's, it's nothing new uh, and has happened for decades, but it's, it's starting to feel as though the weight of progress on disclosure is accelerating, uh, at least in my opinion. Um, so only time will tell and we'll keep reporting out, but there's a directional feeling to me that, that a shift is occurring um, over the last few years in particular. So uh, for those of you in the deep, and you know who you are, keep pushing. We want to know. We want the truth. We really do. And our last UFO story for this week comes to us from San Luis Valley. And this one's called UFO Watchtower, Eyes on the Sky for 20 Years. It's safe to say that in terms of roadside attractions, the UFO Watchtower in San Luis Valley is out of this world. The structure dedicated to keeping eyes on the skies has been attracting visitors from all over the world for 20 years and reports that hundreds of those who have stopped by have sighted UFOs. Quote, I just keep telling folks, look up once in a while. Stop looking down at your cell phone, stated Judy Mizzoline, owner of the Watchtower. The celebration planned for two decades of spectating the skies just north of Hooper, Colorado, had to be postponed due to the ongoing COVID crisis, but that doesn't mean that this alien-centric outpost has any fewer stories to share after two decades of watching, waiting, and recording. The Watchtower was built by Judy after hearing stories for years from locals to the area of odd traffic sighted in the wild blue yonder. Since the tower was erected, guests have stopped by from all over to see the tower, look for UFOs, and write down their own otherworldly accounts, and often leaving something behind in the garden that sits in front of the watchtower. Over 20 years, the eclectic hodgepodge of donated items left by visitors has grown to be massive, forming a unique testament to how far the reputation of the watchtower has spread on planet Earth. Since the watchtower opened its doors back in 2000, Judy reports that more than 260 UFO sightings have been made just at the tower alone, and all those stories have been recorded in a book that can be viewed in the room under the scaffold. There are more stories and more accounts of interesting and bizarre phenomena surrounding the tower that can be found on their website, so if you Google UFO Watchtower in San Luis Valley, you'll certainly be able to find them. And if you want to check it out for yourself and experience a little bit of this, the out-of-world uniqueness and weirdness of the locale, be aware that the attraction is only open on the weekends for its winter hours. Now, last week we covered a story about China uh, sending a probe to the moon and bringing back soil from the moon. Chenge 5. Well, not to be outdone, Japan has sent a probe, or had sent a probe, to get a sample from an asteroid. Headline, Japan's asteroid sample return mission lands in Australian desert. After spending six years in space, a Japanese spacecraft just landed in the desert of southern Australia, bringing a small cache of asteroid rocks to the surface of Earth. It's only the second time in history that materials from an asteroid have been returned to our planet. Eventually, scientists will open the spacecraft up, uncovering the precious rocks within to learn more about the asteroids that permeate our solar system. The landing is the culmination of Japan's Hayabusa 2 mission, aimed at bringing samples of an asteroid back to Earth. After launching from Japan in 2014, Hayabusa 2 spent four years journeying to an asteroid named Ryugu. The vehicle spent a year and a half hanging around the asteroid, mapping the rock surface, and grabbing samples of material before heading back to Earth. 
Scientists are eager to see the rocks that Hayabusa 2 has returned, as pristine samples from an asteroid could tell us a lot more about what our solar system was like when the planets first were forming. That's because asteroids are a bit like baby pictures of our cosmic neighborhood. These space rocks have been around since the dawn of the solar system, and scientists believe asteroids haven't really changed much over the last 4.6 billion years. These objects contain many of the same materials that were present at the solar system's birth, so studying these rocks in labs here on Earth could provide key context about the early days of the planets. The capsule will be transported to Japan, where we'll learn how, how much asteroid material the mission gathered. JAXA, the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency, which oversees the mission, hoped to bring back 100 milligrams of material from Ryugu, but scientists didn't have a way to measure how much Hayabusa 2 had collected while in space. That exact amount will be revealed when the spacecraft is opened in Japan. Hayabusa 2 used some creative techniques for collecting its sample on Ryugu. The spacecraft first tapped the asteroid with its appendage in February of 2019. When the arm made contact, it shot out a bullet-like projectile and punctured the asteroid, releasing a small mess of dust and pebbles that hopefully went up into the horn. The spacecraft didn't just make one sample grab at Ryugu. Uh, Hayabusa 2 tried this maneuver again in July of 2019, but the spacecraft had done a bit of excavating first. Before tapping the asteroid a second time, the spacecraft dropped a can of explosives onto Ryugu, blasting a crater on the asteroid and revealing some of the rocks located just below the surface. Hayabusa 2 then tapped the surface inside this crater to scoop up some of this newly exposed material. The goal was to gather even more pristine rocks from Ryugu. The material underneath the asteroid's surface hasn't been exposed to the harsh environment of space for billions of years like the rocks on the exterior, which have likely experienced some change in reaction over time. So the material from the crater could actually provide an even better snapshot of the materials that were present when the solar system was formed. Once the Hayabusa 2 team felt confident they had grabbed enough from Ryugu, the spacecraft left the asteroid in November of 2019. After spending the last year traveling to Earth, the spacecraft deployed a small capsule late Friday night with the samples of Ryugu located inside. The capsule then set on a course for Earth, plunging through our planet's atmosphere. It then deployed a parachute, slowing the vehicle from about 12 kilometers per second, or nearly 27,000 miles per hour, so that it could land gently in the Woomera prohibited area in southern Australia. After it hit the ground, teams from JAXA went on an extended search in Australia to find the capsule. The vehicle came down in an area that covers 100 square kilometers or around 38 square miles. It also landed at nighttime in Australia, making the capsule even more difficult to spot. Fortunately, the capsule was equipped with a radio beacon that helped teams locate where the spacecraft touched down. Before the landing, JAXA team set up five antennas around the expected landing site to help find the signal, and the agency also had a helicopter with its own beacon receiver to help narrow down the search. A drone was also on hand to fly overhead of the area to take pictures. Hayabusa 2 is Japan's second mission to retrieve samples of an asteroid. Its first mission, Hayabusa, returned asteroid samples to Earth in 2010, though the mission only managed to collect tiny grains of asteroid material. Hayabusa 2 will hopefully have collected even more than the original Hayabusa offerings. And in 2023, NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission is expected to return the largest sample of material from an asteroid ever collected. 
Though Hayabusa 2 has completed its primary mission, the spacecraft isn't quite done yet. The main spacecraft is still in space and just set on a quest to visit another asteroid called 1998KY26. It'll take Hayabusa 11 years to reach its new target with the goal of analyzing the space rock and learning even more about the asteroids that zoom around us in space. And hopefully you caught it this week, but SpaceX test flew Starship, its Mars spacecraft, in Boca Chica, Texas. And in a glorious display of science, ingenuity, and frankly, explosives, it was quite quite the show, really. And so this one comes out of CNET, and the title is SpaceX Starship Explodes Spectacularly After Successful High Altitude Test Flight. Elon Musk's Starship SN8 prototype, reminiscent of something Buck Rogers might have piloted, fell serenely and silently through the Texas sky for almost two minutes on Wednesday. Then its Raptor engines roared to life, riding the rocket into a vertical orientation in preparation for landing. But it was too little or too late, or maybe a little bit of both. Uh, a few seconds and one spectacular explosion later, SpaceX's latest next-generation rocket prototype followed its first successful high-altitude flight with a hard landing that's sure to be an instant member of the GIF and Meme Halls of Fame. SpaceX founder Elon Musk, who had long warned that such a rapid unscheduled disassembly was possible, was among the delighted masses, but for more technical than primal reasons. SpaceX's latest Starship iteration finally lifted off its launch pad at around 2.45 p.m. Pacific Time Wednesday. An earlier attempt on Tuesday was aborted with just one second left due to an issue with the Raptor engines. A few minutes into Wednesday's flight, one of the three Raptor engines stopped firing. According to Musk, each shutdown was intentional, and the, quote, engines did great. The rocket continued to climb toward a, a planned apex of eight miles as part of its first high-altitude test flight. About four minutes into the flight, a second engine shut down, and the craft seemed to hover for a while until the final Raptor shut down and SN8 began its free fall back to Earth. As it approached the ground, the Raptors and thrusters situated around the rocket were used to perform a flip maneuver and orient it vertically in preparation for a landing burn like we've become used to seeing with the company's smaller Falcon 9 rockets. That burn didn't appear to slow down SN8 soon enough, or quickly enough, as it came in for a rough and explosive landing. Notably, the wreckage showed that it did actually hit the middle of the landing pad. It just hit it a little too fast quite obviously, if you watch the video. The test flight brings Starship much closer to a trip to Mars than it's ever been. But there's obviously still a long way to go. But it was really impressive, and if you haven't watched that video, I highly recommend it. It's, it's extraordinary what SpaceX has been doing with its rockets uh, from Falcon 9 and on. So take a look, really cool. This out of KURL Billings, Montana. Bigfoot sighting? Washington State Department of Transportation cameras capture Sasquatch-like creature on Sherman and Snoqualmie passes. And just to preempt the story, just so you know, Sherman Pass is uh, what you'd consider sort of the northeastern section of Washington State. So if you know where Spokane is, uh, there's also a little town named uh, called Republic. Sherman Pass is off of SR-20, which is very close to that region. So that's that's eastern Washington. Snoqualmie Pass, on the other hand, is on the opposite side of the state, closer to Seattle in the Cascade Mountains. And, um, and uh, so interesting that two sightings occurred very close to one another uh, time-wise. 
but at completely opposite ends of the state. So let's get into the story. The legend of Bigfoot has resurfaced in the news this week after the Washington State Department of Transportation posted two apparent sightings on social media. WS.East, which that's the abbreviation for the Department of Transportation, tweeted about a possible Sasquatch Sherman Pass sighting Wednesday afternoon. Quote, have you noticed something strange on our Sherman Pass SR-20 webcam before? WS.Dot said, if you look closely by the tree on the left, there looks to be something. Might be Sasquatch, dot, dot, dot. We will leave that up to you. And so, yeah, if you if you take a look at the image, which we'll post in, uh, in our social media and up on the website, you'll see what really looks like your standard silhouette of Bigfoot, of, of, of a Sasquatch, kind of like the uh, Patterson sighting, you know, kind of the, uh, like, a, like a freeze frame of a Sasquatch in walking motion, but it's, it's, it seems fairly tall and it's walking up this big snowy bank, kind of an incline, right past a large pine tree. And so it kind of gives it a little bit of, of perspective, you know, when against that tree, it's a fairly large figure, so it's interesting to say the least. And um, it's it's one of the better quality photos I think I've seen recently, anyway, of Sasquatch. Uh, and it's interesting that it's you know it's in the Pacific Northwest. So anyway, I'll continue. The photos gained viral attention with thousands retweeting, sharing, and chiming in on what they thought it might be, or just having plain fun with it. Then, Snoqualmie Pass in western Washington reported its own encounter on Thursday on the heels of the Sherman sighting. Quote, I think Bigfoot is making the rounds across our mountain passes, WS.Snoqualmie Pass account posted. WS.E showed him on Sherman Pass the other day, and now he is on the wildlife crossing on I-90 just east of Snoqualmie Pass. Sasquatch had last been in the news around the inland northwest a little less than a year ago when a viewer spotted giant biped tracks near Medicine Lake, which is actually near Spokane. Quote, never stop believing, Steve Meacham said after s discovering the tracks back in March. I mean, you always got to have something to look forward to. If you can't believe in something that you can't reach, there's no sense of going forward. Uh, that's not, not a wise guy there, I guess. But uh, yeah, kind of fun. And um, yeah, take a look at that photograph. I think you'll find it very curious and again, really kind of surprisingly clear, especially for a Department of Transportation webcam, where you know, a lot of the times the quality is not the best. But uh, Bigfoot, let's get more of those. And from the New York Post, Zodiac Killer's 1969 cipher puzzle finally solved. This one's got a little bit of a creep factor. A long unsolved puzzle sent by the Zodiac Killer to the San Francisco Chronicle has finally been cracked by a team of coding experts revealing a taunting message in which the murderer scoffed that he wasn't scared of being executed if caught, the paper said Friday. Quote, I hope you are having lots of fun in trying to catch me, the killer wrote in the bizarre coded message sent to the paper in 1969. Quote, I am not afraid of the gas chamber because it will send me to paradise all the sooner because I now have enough slaves to work for me. Blah. The so-called 340 cipher, a jumble of letters, numbers, and symbols, doesn't reveal the name of the still unidentified killer who terrorized Northern California in the 1960s and 1970s. But coding experts were thrilled to demystify the missive in the hopes it could help authorities uncover new insights into the mind of the prolific murderer who claimed to have slaughtered at least 37 people. 
quote, Last weekend, a team I'm on solved the 340 and submitted it to the FBI, coding expert David Orenchak told the Chronicle on Friday. They have confirmed the solution. No joke. This is the real deal. A spokeswoman for the FBI's San Francisco office confirmed the message had been figured out, saying the investigators were, quote, aware that a cipher attributed to the Zodiac Killer was recently solved by private citizens. The Zodiac Killer targeted young couples along with a male cab driver and delighted in taunting police and media, sending letters and puzzles about his unsolved cases. And not often uh, spoken about, there is a connection between the Zodiac Killer and another killer in uh, the Texarkana region in 1946 who was nicknamed the Phantom Killer. A lot of the same attributes that you see with the Zodiac Killer. Uh, same weapon, 22 caliber gun, uh, a hooded, and also approached his victims with a flashlight. And some speculate because of the lapse in uh, cases from 1948 to 1963, and one of the few drawings, sketches of the killer uh, with those sort of Buddy Holly military style glasses, uh, it, it speculated that the phantom killer in 1946, Texarkana, who murdered four individuals on what you would call their version of a lover's lane, is the same, potentially, as the Zodiac killer. A lot of the same MO. So take a look. You can find a lot of articles on that around Reddit and just around the internet. Uh, but it's something not really often talked about. And in fact, the Phantom Killer, if you want to get kind of a, a campy version of that story, there's a Pulp fictiony kind of movie that was made back in 1976 called The Town That Dreaded Sundown. And it's all about the Phantom Killer in Texarkana. And quite possibly, by proxy, the Zodiac Killer. Who knows? But... Um, Really cool that this many years later, that's, that cipher has been solved by really just a group of volunteers. Well, that's going to do it for another edition of the Parachronicle Almanac, and we're so thankful that you joined us again. As I noted at the top of the program, uh, we want to hear from you. And just as a reminder, we've got the Parachronicle hotline at 818-570-0126, or you can reach out to me at hawk. H-A-W-K-E at theparachronicle.com. We'd love to hear from you. Feedback, stories, you name it. We want to hear it. So until next time, keep your eyes to the sky and know that here on Earth and in the universe, we are not alone. For the Parachronicle Almanac, I'm Jonathan Hawke. <laughs>